Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a rainy and autumn day here in the capital is Saya Mahn. Saya is the founder and CEO of Mahn Digital Marketing Limited, an international digital marketing agency. Uh, Saya, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Yes, thank you so much for having me as well. It's a real pleasure having you on the airwaves um, alongside us. Um, the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But rather than diving straight into that subject, considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, I do feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But to what extent has it affected you and your business in recent months? Yes, so definitely it's been a challenging period of time since March and, and quite interesting as well. Um, but I think the, the big shocker was the two first weeks of, of mm. lockdown when it happened in March. Um, obviously, my business is still here, so I'm very happy about that. <laughs> We're still going. Um, but in the beginning, we did take a little bit of a hit because we are in the digital marketing industry, so uh, we are servicing clients and making sure they are visible online and you know, making sure uh, we are helping them with their sales process. However, suddenly everything is locked down and companies are thinking, well, there's no one to sell to. People are not able to go shopping. They are not able to move out from their house. They are not, you know, obviously everything is shut down. So, so we did take a bit of a hit in terms of clients pausing their activities and some clients we actually lost which, which was very very sad because their businesses actually went down mm. some some sectors are impacted than others so that was a kind of two weeks of uh, a lot of stress um however i think then after three four weeks we kind of noticed that things are stabilizing and what what i needed to do as a leader and as a you know, founder of the company, I needed to think about well, how can we how can we help our clients to pivot potentially their businesses into the online and digital environment? Would there be opportunities there? So I kind of noticed that I'm I'm suddenly pivoting my my own business from just providing mm-hmm. digital marketing services to actually providing business consultancy as well, and we work really hard with the clients that we obviously retained and then we started to pick up new business well because of it um, in terms of pivoting businesses online and how, how businesses and, and their leaders can thrive in the digital environment. So it's been very interesting from, from very large shock to actually mm. something exciting as well. So yeah, it's been interesting. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. It seems as if there are some positives for you that have come out of this in the way that the business has been able to diversify and businesses and industry have had to do just that throughout the course of the last few months in order to largely survive and generate new income streams. Absolutely. Um, What things would you say that you've really learned as positive lessons from this experience then? 
Um, well, positive experiences have. Obviously, we we worked in an office environment, so I have offices in uh, in Scandinavia and here in in the UK. So we were all working together effectively, and then suddenly we were told to work from home. So I needed to set up everyone working from home, and that was a bit of a concern at first because we've been together for the past decade <laughs> working together. Uh, so the social kind of element uh, was taken away. However, I did notice that we are quite competent working at home as individuals, and we're really pulling together as a team, even if we are working in different locations. And because we are digital business, it's quite easy for us to to work from home. So that was quite positive, and everybody, you know, all my team members, they were still feeling very. Uh, motivated and productive and actually I, I think they're working even harder because they didn't need to do the early morning commute and so forth so, so yeah I think working from home was one positive thing obviously we mm. miss each other and everything uh, obviously with the overheads that come with the office um, that's quite quite a, quite a big saving for us and we can save that that uh, overhead for a rainy day mm-hmm. <laughs> And um, in terms of clients as well, I think the positives have been that we've managed to kind of educate and make clients aware that there's lots of opportunities online. You don't need to lose everything overnight because you might be a brick and mortar business or you might rely on footfall. Now that people are more at home, um, people do still obviously want to consume things and buy things. So we, we can create that presence for them online. There are a lot of different aspects to consider with the uh, debate around working practices and what's going to happen in future with regard to working from home, isn't there, uh, Saya? Because what we have noticed is that in your case, um, a lot of businesses have started to make savings on not having their office space and instead jettisoning it and having everybody working from home. And we are seeing some benefits of uh, people um, sort of having a better work-life balance with regards to not having to commute into work and being able to do more things at home. But on the other hand, there is also that element that you mentioned there of the social isolation of the lockdown and working from home and not being able to physically go into the office space and socialise and see your colleagues. So there's also that to consider um, as well. Considering the um, the mental health argument on both sides, can you see the office returning in the way that it was before, even when COVID-19 is no longer an issue? Or do you think that we are going to see this sort of hybrid system for maybe people keeping offices if they can afford to and maybe just working in there one or two days a week? Or can you see more people sort of working from home on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, considering the situation where we are and, and the you know, obviously the past few months uh, or quite a, six months even, so what I think will happen is indeed, like you mentioned, a hybrid model. So what, I, what I've said to my team, when we can go back to the office again and um, work together, I think the best and most productive way to work together effectively and still maintain that work-life balance is to work part-time from the office and part-time from home. So I don't believe we will go back to full-time office environment, I think it will be more flexible because it can be, and it can be still very, very productive. And I do believe um, team members will be happier as a result as well, because they don't need to do the 
rat race, so to speak, anymore. Mm. Um, so I, I think it will be a hybrid, yes. And with regard to actually managing people's sort of mental health and well-being from a leader's point of view, just how easy or how difficult has that been over the uh, the last few months? Because I can imagine you've had to have some conversations with one or two people um, about how they're feeling. And that, of course, um, comes with its own uh, challenges. Yes, absolutely. So we've been very, uh, I definitely acknowledge that. And we've had actually daily video calls. Um, via, you know, Zoom or Google or WhatsApp. So we organize these regular catch-ups every day. We work together. <clears throat> we come together as a team. We have a bit of a laugh as well. We work, you know, talk about work and clients and what needs to be achieved. But then we, we do have some free time as well and just have that little office banter online, if you like. <laughs> and I, I've spoken to all the team members individually as well and just made sure you know, that their environment at home is sufficient. And are they happy? Are they feeling lonely or, you know, a- anything like that? So I've, I've told everybody they, they can be completely honest with me, completely open with me. I want them to be happy. I want them to be productive. And if there's anything that I can provide in terms of them um, working better in the home environment, then, then I will do it. I will find a solution. And then also we've organized regular meetups. You can still meet uh, in, the, you know, in the summertime. It was actually picnics for us because nothing else was open. But we would do team picnics together. We would meet in the park or, you know, now we would meet in the restaurant. For example, have a team lunch. So I try to keep that physical element present, even though it's not every day. I think that will definitely help lift up everybody's, everybody's spirits and nobody's left feeling lonely. Mm, certainly um, is um, important, uh, just managing people's mental health and making sure that they're not isolated. That's absolutely right. And um, just thinking about the uh, the next few months, um, it is going to be an ongoing challenge because given Prime Minister Boris Johnson's uh, pr- announcement last week, we are going to be operating under COVID-19 restrictions nationally in England until potentially at least the end of March. Um, so this new normal is going to be here to stay for quite some time yet. Um, but as business continues to get to with that. Um, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Marn Digital Marketing over the next few months and indeed this next year, Saya? And where do you see yourselves actually being in 12 months' time? Um, I think, well, at the moment, uh, business is up, so it's quite a good position to be in because there's so much demand for businesses being online, so they need our services, and this is a great thing. So my ambition before lockdown was to grow the company. My ambition still is to grow the company, hire more people, help businesses to reinvent themselves online, digitally, where, you know, obviously they can make make more money and be successful, even if, you know, this COVID crisis would have kind of knocked them down initially. So we want to help businesses to 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 be successful now and in the future. We want to retain our clients and make sure they grow with us as well. So it's growth is in my mind. Uh, it's now and it was there before COVID and I'm not going to let this pandemic kick us down. So yeah, growth, growth it will be. <laughs> mm, I'm so 
happy about the ambition there, uh, Saya, for sure. It's a fantastic mission that you're on uh, to help um, businesses uh, carry on and survive this uh, difficult period. And it's going to be a challenging time for industry. Um, We are just about out of time on the programme today, but it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the show with us. And I think it would actually be wonderful to catch up at some point in this next year and have you back on our show just to see how things are getting on in the respect that you've outlined there. Yeah, that would be amazing, definitely. Thank it you. certainly would. It really, really would. I've thoroughly enjoyed your company on the airwaves uh, today, Saya. And most importantly, until we do hopefully get to speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. And let's just keep our fingers crossed that everything's going to be positive trajectory from here. <laughs> Thank you. And you too. I'd also reiterate that message to every single one of our listeners as well. Do please look after yourselves and be considerate of others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. And it was a real pleasure to welcome Saya Mahn onto today's programme, the founder and CEO of Mahn Digital Marketing Limited. Coming up next on today's show, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, during his professional career, Sir Jeff did score over 200 professional goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But of course, he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition. I'm sure many of you need no reminding that that came in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago, which saw Captain Bobby Moore lift the Jules Rimet trophy. Um, So Jeff will be coming on to the programme to speak about some of the highlights of his career, the impact of leadership throughout, as well as leaving a message of thanks and support to our our wonderful NHS. So Jeff will be joining us shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Uh, good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player. Uh, tremendous goal scorer and if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved uh, it would be someone like Harry who was a fantastic professional with with Spurs in England so absolutely and I want England to do well I mean I want England to be successful I'm an England supporter I'm a football supporter and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in in all sports and particularly in my sport so I wanted to bury it and I'd be absolutely I would be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements, about the team being successful, whether I got two or three 
in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually with my back to goal. I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hands to Kowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game's got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, making it. It's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now being replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh absolutely particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing and I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently 
and to see individually the, the amount of people who were interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic, all these people from different different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rap, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. 
So you've got to hone that lot all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across, the str- across the road um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the, uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal. And it's always just three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court. And uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for 
kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under Lyne. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third goal in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kindly put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. One game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about but between the two. I had the one first class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, the V Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was, that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. When you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, 
whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, not just setting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a, a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was 
I was initially first fairly surprised. I think it, <laughs> and certainly my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was, uh, which is, I can see in myself, I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world-class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is, uh, was, he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across. But not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mold mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times uh, getting, uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those. Uh, those few months, and I think it was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um. Well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And, of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we were, it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They'd won, of course, the... Uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Sadly, mm. they knocked us out in the semi-final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my... Uh, uh, sell by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contributions to that success the club had. So um, yes, it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and. Um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there so that was, that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England new, new kitchen 
So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yeah, so I think it's, I think the that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And, and I always joke and say, you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. And I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my, uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. It ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff. Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.